Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now it's time for our reading out of the New Testament. And our narrative comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 28. Here's a brief overview of some of what we'll be reading about in today's scriptures. Jesus further clarified the membership rules of the kingdom of heaven. Infants is by God's grace alone. And this parable we'll read about here today, God is the landowner and believers are the workers. This parable speaks especially to those who feel superior because of heritage or position, to those who feel superior because they've spent so much time with Christ, and to new believers as reassurance of God's wonderful grace. Do you resent God's gracious acceptance of the despised, the outcast, and the sinners who've turned to Him for forgiveness? Have you ever been jealous of what God has given to another person? Well, instead, focus on God's gracious benefits to you and be thankful for what you have. Now, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection for the third time uh, here in these scriptures we'll read today. But the disciples still didn't connect the dots. They didn't accept and believe what he meant. They continued to argue over their positions in Christ's kingdom. And now let's begin to read Scripture here today in the New Testament. January 30th, the New Testament. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 28. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon, and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, Why haven't you been working today? They replied, Because no one hired us. The landowner told them, Then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening he told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, Friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day he will be raised from the dead. 
Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? he asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please, let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones He has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life a ransom for many. Psalm 25, verses 1 through 15. Seventy-two psalms, almost half the book, speak about enemies. Now, enemies are those who oppose not only us, but also God's way of living. We can view temptations, money, success, prestige, lust, as our enemies. And our greatest enemy is Satan. David asked God to keep his enemies from overcoming him because they opposed what God stood for. If his enemies succeeded, well, David feared that many would think that living for God was futile. David did not question his own faith. He knew that God would triumph. But he didn't want his enemies' success to be an obstacle to the faith of others. Now, David expressed his desire for guidance. How do we receive God's guidance? Well, the first step is to want to be guided and to realize that God's primary guidance system is in His Word, the Bible. Psalm 119 tells of the endless knowledge found in God's Word. By reading the Bible and constantly learning from it, we'll gain the wisdom to perceive God's direction for our lives. Now, we may be tempted to demand answers from God, but David asked for direction. When we're willing to seek God, learn from His Word, and obey His commands, then we will receive His specific guidance. Psalm 25, verses 1 through 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. Do not let me be disgraced, or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. No one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced. But disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me. For you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love. For you are merciful, O Lord. The Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. 
He leads the humble in doing right, teaching them His way. The Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness all who keep His covenant and obey His demands. For the honor of Your name, O Lord, forgive my many, many sins. Who are those who fear the Lord? He will show them the path they should choose. They will live in prosperity, and their children will inherit the land. The Lord is a friend to those who fear Him. He teaches them His covenant. My eyes are always on the Lord, for He rescues me from the traps of my enemies. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work. They labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. So what we'll do is let's just pray and then we'll, we'll jump into Luke, right? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you that you're, you're gracious to us, that you're good to us, that you, um, you walk with us, you care for us. I just ask God, that you give us wisdom as we move forward. You give us um, direction as we move forward. You give us clarity as we move forward. That we would not make um, unwise decisions. That we wouldn't be... Um, that you just keep us from making big mistakes. And that, God, you just lead us. We, we want to do all these things for, for the advancement of your kingdom, which means people coming into relationship with you, you becoming king of their lives, not everything else. That's our heart. That's our hope. So I pray that you'd lead us in the direction that that would happen and that we wouldn't be distracted by just simply good things. We want, we want to do the right things. We want to do the things that line up with, with your vision and your mission and, and, and what we're called to as, as a church. And so protect us, lead us. Be with everyone in this room, God. I know that this, for some, um, probably uh, kind of strikes them very surprisingly and maybe even with resistance. And I just pray, God, that as we pray together, as we engage just with our own wrestling about where, where we're called and where we're headed, that, God, you would just give us peace and direction and, and joy, ultimately, with whatever happens. And that this would be a time where we come together, we unify, that we pray for each other, that we would um, ask good questions, and that we'd be encouraging. And so thank you, God, for your grace. Again, amen. All right, so we got two more Sundays um, in in uh, the parable of the two lost sons, and we've been looking. We've been looking. This story is traditionally called, you know, the parable um, of the prodigal son, and we've said that uh, that you'll miss the radical message of the story if you don't see that there's two sons in the story. Um, we tend to focus on the one son, 
Um, but that ends in verse 24, and, we, and, we, and we, this whole other act ensues, and we actually see that there's, that there's another one. We've got one that's immoral, we've got one that's bad, and we've got one that's very, very moral, very good. But, but what we've come to know is that both of them are alienated from the Father in the story. Both of them, um, in effect, are spiritually lost. Both of them are spiritually lost. And so this is, a, this is a remarkable message for us, I think, and it's a remarkable message. It would have been a, um, a remarkable message for the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus was talking to um, at this time. And so, but there's much, there's much more, and I'm excited to, to dive into kind of what, how we're going to look at it this week. But let's go ahead and read um, our text. We're going we're gonna to focus mainly on the first few verses of chapter 15 and then, and then 25 through 32 again. So you can read along um, on the screen. So chapter, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 6, says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them in parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Now let's go ahead and go down to verse 25, which says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So what we have to remember is that this is the third of three parables that Jesus, that Jesus tells. And he was telling them to the same exact audience. And, and really, for us to rightfully understand this third one, we have to ponder them, we have to reflect on them all together. And so what do we learn if we do that? Well, well this morning we're going to kind of cover three big ideas. And the first is, is we're going to look at the cost of reconciliation. The cost of this forgiveness. Secondly, um, that, there's, that there's a missing elder brother. And then thirdly, we're going to reflect on the fact that, that we have a true elder brother. We have a true elder brother. So let's look, at, let's look at this idea of the first one, the cost, the cost. So verse 29 If we read it again, it says this. The elder brother, he answered the father. He said, look, these many years I've served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. 
that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. All that's mine is yours. So the question I think we have to ask, one of the questions we have to ask is, what did it cost to bring the younger brother home? What was the cost? See, at first glance, it seems, it seems not to have cost anything. Right? There's no punishment. He's just taken back in. He's just, he's just invited back in. The father opens his arms. He puts new clothes on him. And that's it. It's free, right? See, many people, I think, um, when they tell this story, they've pointed out, they've pointed this out and, and their argument has sounded something like this. They've said, you know, God in heaven is like this father. And he just, he just accepts and forgives anyone who asks. There's no need for the classic uh, Christian doctrine of atonement. Christians have taught that God can't simply forgive, that there must be uh, payment for sin. But here we see that reconciliation is completely free. However, this is a great mistake. This is a great mistake. See, what we have to understand is that the reconciliation was free to the younger brother but it was very costly for someone else. It was very costly for someone else. See, the elder brother is furious with the father for receiving his younger brother back into the family. He alludes to that. I mean, it's pretty plain, actually, when he says, you never gave me a young goat, right? We've kind of said, I can just imagine him whining this out. Like, you, you never gave me a young goat, but here, here you, know, I, you know, I was never able to celebrate with my friends, but you killed a fattened calf for him. And so we have to, again, remember, we have to remind ourselves that the father had given the younger son his entire legal part of the inheritance. It was all spent. It was all gone. Yet, now we see the father restoring him into the family. He's already put a robe on him. He's already given him his, his ring, Right? which was probably the signet ring which, which, fam, you know, which fam, family members would use to ratify contracts. And so the younger brother's fair share of the wealth is all gone. He spent it on what the elder brother says. He spent it all on prostitutes. He, he was out in wild living. He, he gave it all up. It's gone. And so now every robe, every ring, every fattened calf is coming out of somebody else's pocket. Everything the father has now is legally the elder brothers. It's the elder brothers. He's the only heir of what the father has left. So every robe, every ring, every fattened calf, every cent of the fathers is ultimately the elder brothers. So when the father says to the elder brother, son, everything I have is yours, He's speaking the literal truth. Because everything that he has will be given to the elder brother. So what we have to understand is that the salvation of the younger brother isn't free after all. It's already been extremely expensive. I mean, if you look at the feast, 
This was extremely expensive. This wouldn't have been something, this wasn't something that happened regularly. It wasn't even something that happened semi-regularly. This was probably the first time that you would invite the whole community together and you would just feed them the fattened calf. They didn't eat meat. We've already mentioned that. This was very expensive. It was very rare. And so what we know is that the father cannot forgive the younger brother except at the expense of the elder brother. And this is a big, I mean, it's obvious in a lot of the dialogue that we hear about this, but this is a big misunderstanding that many folks have about God when it comes to salvation, when it comes to forgiveness. Many people say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Just let him off the hook. Isn't Christianity about love? Who cares? Why does anyone need to pay? Why do we need the doctrine of the cross? This is really popular in our culture. It's been popular over the centuries. But see, anytime someone wrongs you, it costs something. Anytime a sin is committed, there's a loss. And it's, I think it's easier to imagine when it comes to physical objects. So I believe I heard Keller um, use this. It was, it's, an, it's an odd example, but I believe he used it at one point. But it's the example of this wonderful, glorious lamp. Okay? This wonderful, glorious lamp. But seriously, the, the beauty of the lamp doesn't, doesn't change the story at all. But let's say, let's say you've bought this wonderful lamp that you just love. Okay? And you can interchange that with something else if it makes you feel better. But you have this wonderful lamp. And let's say you have somebody over to your house and they accidentally hit the lamp and it falls over and it breaks. No more lamp. Sad. Right? Well, there's two things that can take place in that situation. One, either your friend repays you for the lamp, or two, you say, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But you still have a broken lamp. So by saying, don't worry about it, that's really kind of you. That's nice of you. But that doesn't fix the brokenness of the lamp. It's broken. And so, in effect, our sin creates brokenness. And and either we absorb the results by facing the just wrath of God, or God can absorb our sin by Jesus facing the just wrath of God. You see that? The consequences of sin don't just disappear. The consequences of the broken lamp don't just disappear, right? The lamp just doesn't poof, like it's fixed. Nothing, nothing works like that, ever. Nothing. Nothing has ever worked like that. And so the first thing we need to see is the consequence, or not the consequence, but the cost of reconciliation, the cost of forgiveness. The second thing we need to see is that there's a missing elder brother in this story. So verses, let's read verses 1 through 10 again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need, repent, who need no repentance. And then the second parable, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. I tell, just so I tell you, there's, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so the elder brother, he knew all this. He knew that forgiveness and reconciliation was never free. He knew that somebody had to pay. And so either the younger brother has to come and he has to earn his way back into the family like he, like he has to absorb the consequences as he offers to do in verse 19. 19, remember he said, and no more, and, I, and I'm, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your servants. Right? Remember, he was going to get ready. He was going to go back. I'm not, I'm not worthy to be accepted in the family. Just let me be one of your servants. The father won't have any of it. He won't, he won't listen to him. So, so he, can either, he can either absorb the consequences or he can come back in immediately through forgiveness. But then the elder brother has to bear the cost. And so this will be on the screen, but this is really one of the big ideas that we constantly have to remind ourselves is that salvation cannot be free. Salvation cannot be free. Someone has to pay either the sinner or his elder brother. The big idea is that we have to understand here that forgiveness isn't free, redemption isn't free, salvation isn't free. Now listen to me. There's, listen to me, elder brothers in this room, that you struggle with, with that. Many of you are very good and you're nice and you're religious, but it's still all about you. It's still all about you. You're not, and, and you won't lay your life down for your younger brother. See, the elder brother knows this. He refu- and he refuses to do it. He refuses to do it. So we listen to the story. We see the elder brother being a Pharisee, and we're saddened. We're saddened. The elder brother sees the cost, and he becomes angry. He disrespects his father. He can't believe his father would be so foolish. He refuses to acknowledge the sinner. He won't even consider him as a brother. But, but see, the beautiful thing is, is that this is not where Jesus wants our minds and hearts to remain. See, we have to remember, right, that, that Jesus told the listeners these three parables together. What significance does that have? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. In each of the first two parables, there's a lost object and somebody goes out, somebody searches for it, and they bring it home with joy. Right? The shepherd searches until he finds the lost sheep in parable one. The woman searches until she finds the lost coin in parable two. 
So when we get to this, to this parable of, the, of this lost younger son in the beginning, the listeners, the Pharisees, they would have fully expected that someone will set out to search for the lost brother and bring him home. So the repetition here, the repetition is leading the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is leading them. He's leading them who are listening to believe that the elder son is going to go out and search for his younger brother. That's what the shepherd does, right? That, that's what the woman does with the coin. But to our surprise, nobody goes. No one does. And so Jesus is leading us to ask this question. Who should have gone out to search for this lost boy? Who should have gone out to search for, for the lost boy? And the answer would have been quite clear to the first, the first century listeners. It would have been quite clear to these scribes and Pharisees. It should, it should have been the elder brother. It should have been the elder brother. See, that, that was the reason that the oldest son, he got the lion's share of the estate. He got the estate of his father. It, it was his job to sustain the family's unity. It, it was his job to, to, to sustain the family's place in the community. It was his job. It's the elder brother in the parable who, who should have said something to the effect of, Father, my younger brother's been a fool. Now his life is in ruins, but I will go look for him and I will bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. <clears throat> and so this, this, is, this is where Jesus is leading us. And this is what would have been the right response. This is what would have been the gospel-centered response. How so? Jesus doesn't put, or sorry, Jesus doesn't put an elder brother like that into the story. Instead, the younger son and the father have to deal with a resistant, self-righteous elder brother. They get a Pharisee. The younger son and the, and the father, they, they, get, they get a Pharisee. They, they've got one who obeys all the rules and obeys and listens, but who does it all for what he can get out of it. Not because he loves the father. In this story, the father and the sinning son get an elder brother. But we don't. The beautiful thing is, we don't. The elder brother in the story is there to make us long for a true elder brother. One who, if we go astray, won't hold it against us, but will seek us out will bring us back at any risk or at any cost to himself. And so the third big thing we have to realize in this story is that we have a true elder brother. So think, think of the kind of elder brother that we need. We need one who would not just go out to the far country, but one who would come all the way from heaven to earth for us. We need one who wouldn't just open his wallet for us, but pour out his life. 
One who would, who would pay not just a finite cost, but an infinite debt to bring us back into God's family. And we do. It's Jesus. See, when the father says to the elder brother, everything I have is yours, that's literally true of Jesus. Jesus had all God's glory. Jesus had equal glory with the father, but he emptied himself. Philippians 2, 4 through 10 says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He lost it all for us. How do we get the father's robe? Because Jesus was stripped naked on the cross. How do we get the father's feast? Or we get into the father's feast because Jesus took the cup of wrath that we might have the cup of joy. So he's our true elder brother. And he says so. Hebrews 2.11 says, So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. So Jesus came to earth. He fully obeyed his father and he never disobeyed his orders. He, he truly had the right to all the father's stuff. But instead, he came out And he searched for us. And he found us in the pigsty and he carried us home singing with joy. And he gave us his robe and he gave us his ring and he gave us his place and he gave us his wealth. And this is all at his expense. This is all at Christ's expense. And so friends, this is why we're anticipating on moving to the hilltop. This is exactly why we're going there. Why in the world else would we want to go to a place like the hilltop or Franklinton? Aren't there dirty people there? Aren't there addicted people there? Aren't there angry people there? Aren't there different races there? Heaven help us. Yes, and probably more. Probably more issues, probably more things that we we shouldn't go there. But let me ask you a question. Where would Jesus be? Where would Jesus plant a church? Who would Jesus refuse to care for? Who would Jesus refuse to love? What, what breaks my heart, and, and, and you know what? Jesus is good. Even the church, we, we, we're sinners and we're messed up. But it breaks my heart that what, why is it that Sunday morning is the most, one of the most segregated times of the week? 
Why is it that churches oftentimes grow in suburban neighborhoods, but nobody wants to permanently invest in the city centers and the urban neighborhoods? Where would Jesus be? I think he'd be with folks that knew they were sick. I think he'd be with folks that knew they were in need. I think, I think he'd be with folks that knew that they were desperate. And so simply put, I think we have an opportunity to be a part of something that's probably a little radical for our culture. I think we have, we have an opportunity to be a part of something beautiful. And don't get me wrong, I don't want to romanticize it. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward at times. But I believe it's going to be good. And so, friends, I'd be lying to you if I, if I didn't say, I encourage you to embrace, to embrace the wild journey, to see the men's lives changed in the refuge ministry, but also by God's grace. Slowly but surely, my prayer is that we see the neighborhoods of Franklinton and Hilltop transform into God's likeness over the years to come. So let's pray. Lord, you're calling us to something that is not comfortable. And to be honest, I'd rather do something else. The problem is, God, I don't, when, I, when I read the New Testament, I don't see any of the apostles or disciples being called to anything comfortable. Because I think ultimately, I don't think you're against us. I don't think you want us to hurt and suffer. But I don't think what you're calling us to is comfort. And so many of us just need to get up off, we need to get up off our butts. We need to move. We need to be uncomfortable. We need to be stretched. We need to get into a place where we're desperate for you. Because I'm sick and tired of hearing the words and people's, you know, we want a new word. We want to be encouraged. We want to feel good. We want to be excited. But we don't want to do the work of ministry. We don't want to love the unlovable. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be challenged. We want to feel good and go home. We want a nice family and a nice house and a nice paycheck and a nice neighborhood with nice people that smile a lot. We want nice coffee. We want nice food. And none of that is wrong, but that's not necessarily what you're calling us to. And God, I know we're not all called to difficult places, but I pray I pray to God that we would be obedient to where we are called. And that our posture would be, God, where you lead me, I will go. If it's a rich suburb, I will go. If it is the most violent and, and, and just terrible neighborhood there is, I will go. 
That should be our posture as Christians. That's what you did for us. At great expense to yourself. So Jesus, my prayer for us is that for the first time, some of us would just put our faith in you. We're broken, we're beat up, we're weary. And you know what? Praise God. In our brokenness, in our, in our woundedness, in our weariness, we're reminded that we're not God. That there's something beyond us that we need. And it's you. And so some of us need to just confess that we're, we've been trying to find joy in the wrong places and we're, and we're tired. And some of us need to repent because we've been pursuing comfort more than we've been pursuing picking up our cross daily and following you. Some of us just need to rejoice because you know what? We're following you and we're having a pretty decent week and praise God for that. But I just pray that as we go to the table in a minute, as we, as, that we would not take communion lightly because your body was broken and your blood was shed. And how dare us go to that table if we don't mean it. It's not just a symbol. It's our salvation. That if we put our faith in you, because of the expense that you gave us, we we can find relationship with God. Change us. Humble us. Praise you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.